well, what we're going to be looking at is a portion of the book of Colossians. Um, now, it's good to know, basically, first of all, what the, what, the, what the whole purpose of the book of Colossians is. And you can basically divide it. It's four chapters. You divide it in the first two and the second two. And what happened in Colossae was that some false teachers came in or they rose up within the church and they started uh, teaching things which the end result was to diminish Jesus, to pull Jesus down either by saying, well, he's not really fully God, or else they're saying, well, it's okay to believe in Jesus, but there are other things that you must believe in as well or do. For example, believe in Jesus, but you've got to get circumcised as well, because without that, what Jesus did isn't effective. Or or in modern terms, you maybe say, you've got to believe in Jesus and you must speak in tongues. Or else some people might say, well, you've got to believe in Jesus, but you must be baptised before you are saved. These are different things that people add that have the impact of diminishing Jesus. So in the first two two chapters, Paul argued against that very powerfully and he established the fact that Jesus himself was supreme and you don't need anything more other than Jesus. He is the answer. So in the second part of the chapters 3 and 4, he then says, well, look, bearing this in mind that Jesus is supreme and that's all you, all you need, he said, well, how then do you live a life which is worthy of who Jesus is? And that's what chapters 3 and 4 are all about. Um, and in verses 1 to 17, what Paul begins is the practical outworking of what you call the supremacy the uniqueness of Jesus, he's working it out. So in verses 1 to 4, he says he says two things basically. He says, number one, set your hearts on things above, things above, meaning God's desires for us. And then it says, not, set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things. What are the earthly things? The things that our sin nature wants. Let's not forget that when we become a believer, we still retain our sin nature. Like we, some, we tend to think sometimes when we become a believer, our sin nature just runs out the door. No, it doesn't. We, our sin nature stays with us as long as we are alive, but we have been equipped to deal with the sin nature through the indwelling Holy Spirit who is, enables us to, to um, uh, control the work of our sin nature. So in, in verses 1 to 4 it says, set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things. Then verses 5 to 11, what Paul talks about is to decisively take off earthly things. So he talks about the things that can cling to us. But isn't that true about the Christian life? That there are things which cling to us. And we th- when we become believers, we think, and sometimes we think, oh, well, all that's in the past. Well, it's not. Satan's there still can get his grips into us. And he will, and he will make, uh, hay as long as he's allowed to. But then in verses 12 to 17, the one we're looking at today, we're looking at not about the part about taking off earthly things, but we're talking about decisively putting on things above the things that, what, what are God's desires for our life. So what I'm going to do today, is I've divided the passage up into four parts. So first of all, the title of the talk today is, how to live a things above life. How to live a things above life. Or, or in fact, how to live a life that is pleasing to God and worthy of Jesus. And I've divided into four parts. The first part is to put on love and its many expressions. Then, this is talking about living a life worthy of Jesus. 
then live in peace and thankfulness, then embrace the gospel and be teachable, finally generally live like Jesus. And then I want to conclude with some further thoughts right at the end on how to live a things above life. We need practical help to how we actually go about doing it, right? So let's begin with the first one, which is verses 12 to 14, put on love and its many expressions. And I'm just going to go through this verse at a time and then we'll sort of um, uh, expound on it. Verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Let's go back and look at that. First of all, he starts off by saying, therefore. So he's saying what he's talked about, he says, put off the old and put on the, put off, take off the, the old or the bad and put on the new and the good. That's what he's saying. Therefore, because we've done, we've done that or we'd, we're, we're going to do that, he says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now I hesitate with the word holy. I hesitate in one sense we are holy. But in a practical sense, we are not. We are deemed by God. When God looks at the believer now, he says, you and I, we are right in our relationship. We are going well. You're now my child. You're part of my family. You're one of my children. But of course, in reality, we are a work in in progress, aren't we? We're a person who became a believer and then we're growing and maturing as the years go by. So I know we are we are deemed to be holy, but in practical terms and in in our in our, our relationship with God we are we're deemed to be, but in practical terms we're not. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with. And then he gives a series of virtues. When he says clothe yourselves with, what he's giving us there is not he's not saying would you please do it, or could I suggest to you that you do it. He's not saying that. It's a command. He's telling you, clothe yourself with these virtues. He's giving us a command. And what he's doing is using the a sort of a metaphor of taking off old clothing and putting on new clothing. We'll come to that a little bit more later on. So he says, clothe yourself. And then he lifts, and he lists some virtues. It's not an exhaustive list. But it's just a list of some of the virtues that we need to be have very clearly in mind. Compassion, kindness, humility. What humility? What a lovely word! I love that word. Humility, but hard, but hard won. It can be hard won because we have to go through some very difficult times first to learn genuine humility. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Beautiful and patience. Once again, hard won. So many times for so many people. Right. Let me look at the next verse. Verse 13, it says, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So it says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. Well, that can be hard to do, can't it? And it can be hard to bear with people. You know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of difficult people around. And you know what? You know where a lot of the difficult people live? You know where you meet them? In the church, don't you? Well, you've got to live with me. 
Um, you know, it's, it, it's funny. It's when you get to know people or you get married to them or they're part of your family, you know what the word difficult people means because people actually be themselves fully. And to learn how to live with your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, or people you really know well. And in the church, you know, the wonderful thing, which I think is one of the wonderful things about the church, is outside the church we relate to people that we like and we get along with and similar people to us. But in the church we don't. There's some really, there's some really people that are great to get on with and there are others that are really tough, really hard. And you, you sort of mumble and fumble about them a bit sometimes and mumble about how they're not really all the people that they should be. But then again, we, haven't we all got flaws? And my wife often, well, not not as much as she used to, but she does point out to me that I've got a few flaws. But you don't know me as well as my wife does. But that's the reality. We all have quirks and weaknesses. Even I, even I have got quirks and weaknesses. And so there you go. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of, if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I think that's, isn't that utterly central to the gospel? God forgave us even while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. He loves us despite, despite our um, unwillingness, despite our sin, despite our disobedience, despite our lack of commitment and apathy on occasion. He loves us. Isn't that absolutely incredible? Um, so he says, just as and forgive one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Right, let's look at the last verse. It says, and over all these virtues, here we come back to the put on love bit, and over all these virtues, now this was an exhaustive list, you could have a list a mile long of virtues we should aspire to, over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I view love as being the overarching virtue expressed in a variety of ways. So you look at the at these virtues mentioned before. If you love someone, you will show compassion. If you love someone, you will show kindness. If you love someone, you won't be proud in dealing with them. You will be humble. You will be gentle. You will be patient with people that you love. So so these virtues are a manifestation of love. It's like an, an overcoat. It, going back to the, the closing metaphor, it's like the, you're wearing your new clothes and you put a cloak on over the top. It's, that's what love is. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an overarching virtue. Righto. That's the first section. Put on love and there's many expressions. Let's look at the next one. Verse 15. Live in peace and thankfulness. Let me read it to you, the verse. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Right, and then it says, let the peace of Christ. Well, what is the peace of Christ? I think there are three, three, perhaps three expressions of that that spring to my mind. The first one is, is that we have peace with God. When, when we put our trust in Jesus, we have peace with God. That is the best thing. We are no longer God's enemy. We're no longer at war with God. We're not turning our back on him and ignoring him and saying, I don't want to know you. No, we acknowledge him and we humble ourselves before him. So the first one is peace with God. What? What? Through the blood of Jesus. It's only because of what he's done. The second thing is the peace within 
the peace that we have within ourself, just going about life, the peace within flowing from our 24 Seven, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, trust in and obedience to Jesus. If you're disobedient, that peace can wander away from you, can't it? I think we know that from experience. When we're not obedient, not trusting, this peace will walk away from us. That's the second peace, peace within flowing from our trust and obedience in Jesus. The third thing is, is peace with others as far as it depends on us. I remember the, the people that I used to be before I became a believer, the many people that I was really angry with. I find it very hard to get angry with anyone now. Very, very hard. Um, and I think um, some of the things, one of the things I used to get really uptight about, you remember when you're having dinner at night, let might be say, or lunchtime or dinner, and then the phone rings, and you think, oh, I wonder who that is. So you go to the phone, you pick the phone up, and then someone says, look, Someone with a foreign accent says, oh, about a new telephone plan or something like that. And I used to be pretty, not very nice talking to people like that. Well, I can say now that, you know, they're part of... Now, I did try once sort of giving a mini-sermon to a person on the phone, but it didn't work. And I said, look, I'll listen to you. If you listen, if you listen to what I've got to say first, then I promise I'll listen to you. And I told them about Jesus and all that. But it didn't, I just really felt it didn't really go over properly. You know what I mean? So I don't do that now. But the point is, that's another person just like us on the end of a phone, probably a person from a country that's got a very low standard of living and is not as blessed as us. And they've got a job that they probably would prefer not to have, but that's the job they've got. And so I tr- and always endeavor to be respectful to the person at the other end, to be at peace, uh, to be at peace with them. Righto. Uh, now, where, where was, oh, right. Then it says, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. What does it mean by rule? It means to be present within us and controlling us. Controlling us. Make sure that the peace of Christ, the peace that Jesus gives, controls our behavior. And it says, in our hearts, what's it mean? Does it, is that just sort of an emotional thing? When we talk about the heart of a person in the Bible, it's, we often think, well, it's, it's the warm and fuzzy aspect. Well, that's part of it. That's part of it. But I think when we talk about a person's heart, we're talking about a person's core being, their mind, their will, and their emotions, the totality of who a person is. So it's saying, let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts, so with, rule within, within our whole being, since as members of one body, what's the one body he's talking about there? The fact that we're all united around faith in Jesus. I think the wonderful thing is, you could go to Mongolia today, <coughs> or Ethiopia, and you could walk into a church on Sunday, on the assumption that it, it's peaceful to be able to do that, and in some countries it's not, but you could walk in there and you could expect, you can walk up to people and say, I'm a believer and you'll find friends there. You'll find people with whom you're at peace. Isn't that a wonderful thing that we are united around the world? It says, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And then it finishes with just a, th- a three-word sentence, and be thankful. Isn't that, the, isn't that the, uh, a totally appropriate um, uh, command? Command? Um, an urging from God to us 
is to be thankful. Righto. So we talked then about verse 15, live in peace and thankfulness. Let's look at verse 16. It's, it's here it's talking about embrace the gospel and be teachable. Embrace the gospel and be teachable. Let me read verse 16 to you. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. There's a a lot in that. There's a lot in that. Let's come back and think about that. Let the message of Christ, well, what is the message of Christ? I think the simplest expression of the message of Christ is in Mark chapter 1, verse 15b. It's it's basically Jesus' first public uh, statement. And really what what he's basically doing is he says, this is my mission statement. That's basically what he's saying. What he says in that verse, in the last part of that verse is, he says, repent and believe the good news. The good news being the gospel. In very, very brief terms, God's son died or will die, in that case, will die for our sins, rise and will return. That's the gospel in the very, very briefest terms. So so what's he saying here? He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Now when it says dwell among you richly, what's he trying to get at there? What he's trying to say is, and this is not, we tend to think that the gospel is for someone who isn't a believer, and then when they become a so it's for, it's for unbelievers, when they become a believer, well, we just forget about the gospel and we just live a, we just seek to live a good life. No, the gospel is something which is part of us day by day. Why? Jesus died for my sins. I still sin. Jesus has died for me today. And it's not, it's, and Jesus saved me not because of my merit, because I'm a good person. No, he died even though I was a sinner and not a good person. That's what he did. So he says, dwell, let the message of Christ, the gospel, dwell among you richly. So what's that mean? It means at the center of our thinking, controlling our thoughts, attitudes and actions. So for example, I remember when I became a believer, at the start, I believed it was all my doing. That I, that the reason I'm a Christian was because I chose to believe. Therefore, I deserve the credit. Therefore, I am better than those people outside who are not here today. I'm better than those people who have not yet put their trust in Jesus. But I've found over time, I've come to realize <coughs> that no, there is none of my merit at all. And I need to remember that it's not through, it's not through my goodness, but through the goodness of God through Christ that I am today a believer. So we need to have the gospel dwell among you richly. Then it says, as you teach and admonish. And it's talking teaching us. It's just for all of us, of course. But, you know, but there's a lot of environments where it's not just our, it's not, not just, it's primarily referring to our leaders, but it's not just that. It's all of us when we teach and admonish others. We are called to teach and admonish others. I like the expression where it says that we must teach and admonish others speaking the truth in love. 
speaking the truth in love. That can be very, very hard, can't it? Very hard. Just recently, um, I was at a person's place who attends church and when I was sitting there, I, I, I just looked out the window and I noticed there's a little garden outside the door and sitting in the garden was what? Buddha sitting in the garden. It just flicked through my mind. I said, oh, there's Buddha out there. You know, like the Buddha little statues you can get. And um, and I've thought about that since then. And, and I realized that what I should have done, but it didn't occur to me at the time, but that if next time I see them, I will speak about it, that that is a false god and a false idol and it has absolutely no place in the garden of a Christian. No place whatsoever. The Bible is full, full of examples of people who worship idols. I'm not saying these people worship idols. I think it was just simply there because, well, that's what our, that's what people do. It's a, it's almost like a fashion statement. But it shouldn't be there. It should be picked up and broken and thrown in the rubbish bin. That's what it should be. But is it hard to be able to speak to people like that? I think it is. It can be very, very hard and very challenging. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. What's it mean when it's saying wisdom? It means in humility, in love and informed so often we can give a dispense advice to people, and I'm not immune from that either, can dispense advice from to people and then later on think, you know, oh, that could have been expressed a bit better. Or if I'd known a bit more about something, my advice would have been uh, perhaps uh, more beneficial for that person. So if we're going to admonish people, be humble, loving, informed. And then it says... As you, and this is a, this is a bit here where there's a little bit of a variety of opinion on what it means. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, then it says, through psalms, hymns, and songs. People have a variety of ideas on that. My belief is really what the Apostle Paul is, and what God through the Apostle Paul is simply trying to say is, through a variety of Christian songs, that is one way we can teach and admonish people. So if we've listened carefully or noted carefully what we've been singing in the hymns so far today, there is a great deal of, of wisdom and knowledge that we can gain from just taking note of not just singing something, but actually concentrating on the words that we're actually saying. So that's just one way to teach and admonish. It says... As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, (coughs) singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Once again, gratitude in our hearts is totally appropriate. But what's it mean when it says singing? It's it's talking about singing um, from the Spirit. What's it really meaning? I think what he's trying to get at there that it is heartfelt singing. I know what it's like, and I think probably all do know what it's like to sing in just a completely ritualistic sort of way where where we've sung all the words, but if if you're someone to say a minute or so later, what did you just sing? 
you would say, look, I don't remember, I hardly remember anything that I just sang. I've sung the words, but it hasn't sunk in. Uh, I know what can happen to me when I'm singing in church, and I think it's all something that we've all experienced on occasion, is that our mind can wander. We can be off thinking about lunch, or the thing that my husband did to me or said to me on the way here in the car, or the kids have been playing up, or whatever it might be, we can be thinking of a thousand things while we should be focusing on the singing that's there before us. My mind can wander, I believe all our minds can wander. Right, that's the third one, which is verse 16. Embrace the gospel and be teachable. Let's look at the last verse, and then I'll go to some some further thoughts uh, on the passage. The last one is verse 17. It says, generally... Live like Jesus. That's the heading. Generally live like Jesus. Let me read the verse through to you. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He is the ultimate role model, is he not? He is our ultimate role model. And it says, whatever you do, That means everything, everything that we do 24-7. So sometimes, for example, I wake up in the middle of the night and and I want to go for a walk somewhere. You know what you do in the middle of the night? And I go for a walk and suddenly, the moment I wake up, there's a thought in my mind that shouldn't be there. I don't know if that's occurred to you, but it certainly has occurred to me. 24-7. We are to live like Jesus. And regardless of the circumstances, isn't that a challenge, eh? You know when days you feel depressed or someone's done something wrong or three or four things have gone against the way that you would like them to go and so you're really in a cranky mood and you're a bit short-tempered. Whatever you do, meaning everything at all times regardless of circumstances, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed or in thought, of course, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the punchline. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what's it mean in the name of? When it refers to the name of, back in the, it's not an expression we use now much, but the Bible does. It's an expression which means it's the totality of a person's character, who they are. So what it's saying is, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all um, in, when it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, do it all as, as if it was Jesus himself doing it or saying, be like Jesus is what it's trying to say to us. So it's saying that we are to live consistent with his character. Then he says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What for? One, first of all, <laughs> God's infinite goodness generally. He causes the, you know, isn't that been beautiful lately? <coughs> We've had these lovely blue skies. I don't, have you had the wind up here in Gympie? You've had the wind? Well, that's something, it's okay for a while, but after a while you would wish it would stop. Um, but, but the beautiful uh, blue skies, the lovely sunshine, and God puts, gives, gives the rain to people, whether they are a believer or not. God is good, generally. 
But not only that, for giving thanks to God the Father through him, but also what's his greatest gift that he's given? What's the greatest gift that you have personally received? I know the greatest gift that I have received in my life, not education, not wealth, not health, not a good wife, as good as she is, but that's not the greatest gift that I've received. The greatest gift that I have received is the gift of eternal salvation, of acceptance by God into his family so that 10,000 years from now I will be praising him and I will be with him in paradise. That is without question the greatest gift and is a real source, the ultimate source of thankfulness. Righto. Now, we've gone through the passage, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. There are four different headings, and I want to talk to you just a few further thoughts on going back to the title of the talk, which is how to live a things above life, or how to live a life modeling Jesus, or how to live a life Meet doing what God desires rather than what our sin nature wants. And I've just written a couple of things down. First of all, honestly review our life and get real with God in prayer. He already knows who we are. That might seem, that might seem obvious to say that, but I think it took me a few years <coughs> to, to really Embrace the fact. I, I, I remember when I first became a believer, it, that I was it, was, it was almost as if I was acting the Christian. I was a believer, but it was almost as if I was acting the part. And then, of course, it really came home to me over the course of a couple of years that he already knows who I am. What is the point? What is the point of pretending or acting a part? He knows who I am. I think we honestly need to look at our lives and get real with God in prayer. Are we genuinely, truly living a things above life? I have not lived that all my all of my Christian life. I haven't. I, I know that I seek to do it now. I do know that's the case now, but I haven't always been the case. Number two, I'm just going to give you four things. Number two. How to live a things above life. Know the word. You need to know the Bible, God's word. Knowing God's word cannot or does not guarantee maturity, but it is essential to it. If you want to become a mature believer, you need to know God's word. You just simply know you need to know it, not just in a rote way, but you need to have read it, to meditate on it, expand on your understanding through books and commentaries and, and, and part of a Bible study group, that sort of thing. We need to know. Now, that doesn't guarantee maturity because there are many people who know the Bible from back to front, but yet they're not even believers, some of them, or, or they remain immature believers. But to become a mature believer, we need to know the word. The third thing is this, on how to live a things above life. That is to genuinely trust God and his promises and obey him. Don't just say it, but do it. 
It is so easy to say, I trust God or I believe in God or I have faith in God. And it is so easy to say, I obey him. And yet at the same time, our belief or trust or and our obedience can be wafer thin and yet we can say that we do genuinely trust him and his promises and obey him. Don't just say it, but do it. And that requires a real honesty. It requires an honesty in looking at ourselves, but at the same time it requires a genuine, deep trust in God that he really does love me. Does he love me for who I am? Who Does he truly, deeply love me so that I can expose myself in all my weaknesses to him and know that he still embraces me and accepts me as his child? Until we can get to that point, we will not genuinely trust him and his promises and obey him. We've got to get to that point. The fourth and the last one I want to say to you is this, and I'm going to expand on this. I'll be back next week, and I'm talking next week not from Colossians, but from the book of John. Uh, in the book of John, in a passage there where Jesus confronts people, confronts um, a different type of people, different types of people who would be in church. And I'll say a bit more about it next week. But what I want to say, but the bit I want to say today is, and this is the, perhaps the most important thing of the lot, and that is when we talk about the things above life, that is an unattainable life unless we have the Holy Spirit within us who enables us to live the Christian life. The Christian life is a supernatural existence enabled by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And how do we get the indwelling Holy Spirit within us? When we become a believer. When we genuinely believe in, trust in, have faith in Jesus. So that's the, that's the absolute foundation for living a things above life. And I'll talk a little bit more in relation to that when I come back next week. That's, we've gone all the way through it now. If you'd like to talk about anything I've had to say, and I'd love to talk to you about any questions you have, or if you want to make any comments, please come and talk to me. I'm approachable and uh, would very much like to hear what you have to say or any questions that you have. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you have broken into our lives, introduced yourself to us, invited us to put your faith in you. Lord, we thank you for what you have done. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus died on our behalf to pay the price for our sins so that through faith, Lord, through faith in him, we might become your child and one day live eternally with you, praising you, praising you. In Jesus' name, amen.